0: Hey everyone, I'm David Broussel. And I'm Marcus Terren, And this is The Thermal Review, a podcast about sensing, imaging, and automation advancements from the perspective of a couple technology geeks.
1: In each episode, we discuss how the world is changing for cloud-based monitoring, quality assurance, and non-destructive testing.
0: Welcome to The Thermal Review, your go-to podcast for demystifying the world of infrared thermography. I'm your host, David Bursell, and today we have a special treat for you. In this episode, we're revisiting a previously recorded interview with Marcus Terran, president and CEO of MoviTherm, and my co-host. Together, we'll dive deep into the topic of navigating infrared camera enclosures. We'll explore why these enclosures are critical, especially in challenging and potentially explosive environments. We'll uncover the unique differences between infrared and visible camera enclosures, clarifying why you can't use just any enclosure. Finally, we'll guide you through the critical considerations for selecting the ideal enclosure, considering environmental and camera-specific factors. By the end of this episode, you'll be well-equipped to protect your valuable thermal imaging equipment effectively. So, without further ado, let's hear from Marcus Taren, the expert behind the insights you're about to discover, Mr. Tarrant. Good day, Mr. Brusella. Same to you. Thank You'll you be on this channel. <laughs> it is good to be on this channel, and this is a great topic uh, for us to be discussing. I know we get lots of questions around enclosures. We get lots of questions around the type of enclosure for the type of environment for the type of the camera. And it is somewhat of a mystery. It's I wish it was easier. I wish you could just, you know, easily, you know, select the uh an enclosure, any enclosure for your infrared camera. But there are things to consider. So that's yeah. why uh we decided to uh cover this topic in this podcast. And I I think the best place to start, Marcus, is you know why why do you even need enclosures for infrared cameras? So I'm hoping Marcus you can kind of share cuz you've been doing enclosures for a long time. You could kind yeah. of share your experience why, why why are enclosures for IR cameras even needed?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. Um especially when you consider um, a lot of these cameras these days have already let's say an IP67 sort of a uh, you know, environmental protection rating. So then the question becomes, well, why why do I need an additional enclosure around it if this is an outdoor rated camera, right? Yeah. So those are the very excellent questions. So sometimes the environment gets really brutal, if you will. There's a lot of grime, a lot of dust, you know, contaminations floating around, right? So, yeah, even the camera is protected. Um, who wants to have like a half an inch buildup? on the camera every week to clean off, right? That sort of thing. So so that's that's one of the reasons that we often recommend like, hey, it would be probably best to put an additional protective layer around the camera, for example, right? Um another area of, of concern is the 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 front glass of the lens mm. of the of the camera. Uh since we're dealing with thermal cameras is often germanium um and it's a bit sensitive. So if you have a lot of stuff flying around you want to make sure um, that doesn't get scratched or damaged or contaminated again. So, um, because the replacing the lens on a thermal camera is, is a big deal. It, it, it's very expensive, several thousand dollars typically. And it also requires you to take the camera out of commission, send it in for service, get a new re- uh, replacement lens, put on a new calibration. I mean, it's a big deal, right? Yeah. Um, nobody wants to deal with it. Versus if you have um, a thermal camera enclosure, you have a window. It's also made out of germanium, but, um, you know, it's easier to clean and if it does get damaged, it's easier to replace right and it's not as costly and it protects your camera so that's really in a nutshell, uh, why that is. And it's just, um, you know, thermal cameras tend to be still quite expensive so it's really an additional uh, protection and, 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 and kind of like an insurance if you will around your valuables, uh, just to make sure there's an extra layer of safety around it.
0: Right? Absolutely, yeah. and. You know, re- replacing the the window on the enclosure in some cases can be done by the user in the field, right? I mean, in some cases yeah. where you have specialty uh, enclosures for you know explosion proof, probably need to have some precautions around that. But that's 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 a lot easier, like you said, than someone sending in their camera being out of commission, waiting for a repair to happen. And exactly. I, I I know I know we can't mention uh, you know customer names here on the podcast uh without permissions and approval uh but i've i've seen some images of cameras that that therm has brought back <laughs> for servicing that have been caked with all sorts of stuff um dust uh you know heavy sludge uh depending upon the environment that could have been avoided had had they been in an enclosure
1: Right, and we—I'm remembering—that's <laughs> probably what you're referring to. This one case where I—I uh, I would have bet money on that. That camera was complete—a complete loss, but it was actually still working after we cleaned it up. It was—it was actually still functioning, which was amazing. Uh, but yeah, I mean that—that that, those are exactly those kind of examples where you know that's kind of um, you know to be considered uh, a good yeah. candidate for an enclosure, mean.
0: It definitely that particular situation. Yeah, we're thinking the same one. It speaks to the robustness of of that particular camera and that camera brand. But uh, wow, I, I that's probably not normal uh, that that the camera would survive such an environment. I'd, I'd I'd like to help our listeners understand why why they can't or why you anyone can't use you know just a standard enclosure off the shelf or let's say a visible camera for a thermal camera. Uh maybe you can explain why you have to have an enclosure specifically designed for thermal.
1: Yeah, that's another good point. Um so we're dealing uh, unlike with um a standard surveillance camera or something we we're dealing with a different wavelength of of light if you will. Um that is not visible to the human eye, right? So for standard cameras you you put a piece of glass, a piece of plastic in front of it, it can see through it and it's all it's all good. Yeah. Um, if you put a thermal camera in an outdoor enclosure that is intended to be for a regular daylight um, camera for visible light, um, the image will be black. There will be The <laughs> camera will not be able to see anything. And the reason for that is that the glass does not transmit those wavelengths at all. So it looks completely opaque to the thermal camera. And um, we actually had a case where a customer did that. Um, they put a camera behind a plexiglass. Um, and they basically called us and said, hey, um, our camera's not working. We're, we're, we're seeing a black image. There's nothing happening. It's just some noise coming. And then we are like, what's going on? We tested the cameras. The camera's just fine. What are you doing? <laughs> and then we found out that they were putting it behind a piece of plexiglass. So, um, you know, it, again, same same situation, right? Whether it's regular glass or silicate, BK7, or if it's, um, you know, a plexiglass, um, uh, polycarbonate or, or something, any any sort of... A visibly translucent material may not be translucent uh, to the thermal camera in that wave band, right? And that's the reason why we use ex- um, exotic optics is what we call them. Hmm. Those are basically semiconductors, if you will. You know, germanium is a semiconductor material, but it happens to be transmissive um, almost entirely in, in the long wave. Um, and and uh, even there's, there's materials for mid wave as well. Zinc-zelenite comes to mind. Um, so we we need to consider specific materials um that are tuned properly and coded properly for the particular camera in its particular wave band right that it's sensitive to
0: makes a lot of sense yeah so i re- i remember and i won't I won't give all the details, but I remember years ago seeing a video it was actually i think it was from an infrared camera that was mounted to a helicopter or something like that, and it was showing. It was a bad guy and the bad guy initially was in a truck and you couldn't see him, couldn't see him at all. But the bad guy stepped out of the truck and became instantly visible in the infrared spectrum. And had, had he, had he stayed well, I'm assuming it was a, he, I think it was, had he stayed in the truck, he probably could have avoided being detected at all. Uh, But in the end it, it, it turned out not so great for the bad guy uh, because he did. Uh, exit the truck was visible to thermal and was detected. Yeah. So excellent point. With regards to I, I, I heat dissipation and 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 temperature at which infrared cameras run, Marcus, do they do they uh, run any differently? The visible cameras, is there any kind of special, like uh, you know, conduction or, or 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 heating requirements even for infrared cameras that perhaps aren't as uh, you know, necessary for visible cameras.
1: Yeah, it's, it's every time you have um, a protection because of heat, we, we have to ask ourselves several questions, right? So is the environment that the camera is going to go into um, essentially going to be exceeding the operating Conditions um, the maximum operating temperature for the camera that you're trying to to enclose in there or or operate in that environment with or without enclosure right that's the first thing you're going to look at yeah um, and sometimes the situation is well most of the time, yes, but sometimes we have a process where something very hot comes by um, and the camera would be overheated potentially for let's say a short period of time, a few seconds, um, so even those few seconds, even if the camera survives that it will over time degrade the camera and, and shorten mm. the lifetime of the camera right so yes you can close both eyes and say yeah it's not that bad because it's just a few seconds but if it's on a repetitive schedule uh, it will definitely uh, you know burn out the electronics eventually right so because all the components inside the camera will on a regular basis overheat and and, and exceed their their specifications and that's just not a good thing gotcha so so you have to consider the environmental temperature conditions. Um there's other conditions obviously. Um but let, let's just talk about temperature right now. So so that's that's one thing. Then then the question is slow um, again is it is it radiative heat coming from an object that you're looking at? Is it heat? Is it because the air around the camera enclosure is let's say permanently hot? Is the air moving? Those are all considerations in terms of um the the, the convection mechanism that is going to affect um, the enclosure, or is the enclosure just outside let 's say in Nevada or Arizona in in a desert kind of a region, and we have the the radiative impact of the sun and can we can we uh, kind of shield this with a sun shield to make sure we have an additional layer of metal on top that 's very reflective so that the the sun radiation is not going to be heating up the enclosure all that much right so surface finish of the enclosure becomes very important if we have uh, we have these um, very shiny, looks almost like chrome plated. It's actually electro polished stainless steel, and there's a reason for that surface finish because it is a very low emissivity surface. And 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 what that means is that um, if 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 sun radiation hits it, it's like a mirror, so it doesn't absorb the heat from the sun. So it keeps it naturally cool already, which is great for operating in 120, 130 sort of degrees environments there. And so that passive sort of a protection mechanism is typically sufficient to keep the camera inside uh, below its maximum operating temperatures, right? So yeah. that's, that's the environmental temperature, the heat that, that has an impact on the outside of the enclosure. But we also at the same time have to consider the, the self-heating of the camera or any Mm -hmm. device that we put into this enclosure. It could be more than a camera. It could be a little computer. It could be all kinds of other things, uh, power supply and so forth. So we really have to figure out, okay, what is the total heat dissipation of the devices combined that we put inside the enclosure and how big is that space inside the enclosure, right? So we have now have to go back to high school physics class. We have a, a combination of convection that is basically the the heat radiated into the air environment inside the enclosure and then we have also a conduction where we have an actual metal to metal surface that's conducting the heat away from the camera so we need to get rid of the heat that's being produced let's say we have a 15 watt heat dissipation inside right just as an assumption yeah um, so there's a basically you can think of it as a light bulb a 15 watt light bulb inside or a heater basically 15 watt heater inside the enclosure now that's continuously producing heat. Well, that that heat needs to be dissipated. And, and first it's multiple steps. First, it needs to be dissipated away from the camera itself, but you can't just have it inside accumulating because then you get what we call thermal runaway, right? So you can't just pump more and more and more heat. And if the capacity to cool Uh, that environment is basically the the size of the enclosure and the total surface area if that doesn't have the capacity to get rid of that heat that's being produced on the inside in addition to being heated from the outside (laughs) then you have um, a situation so if if the inside heat dissipation is greater than its capacity to cool uh, while we're considering the outside heat influences uh, you're gonna get an, an effect of thermal runaway, and and slowly the heat will creep up and creep up and creep up, and you will you will destroy the camera um, that's in there. So so those calculations have to be considered um, in the environment, right?
0: Yeah. So let's say you you let's say you do the calculations and you you realize we don't have enough effective you know conduction off of the surface of the enclosure into the environment. You're, let's say you're in a Pretty extreme area, high temperatures. Um, what can you do? What are the, what are the options uh, for, for removing that heat? Or are there options?
1: Yeah. So, before we quite go there, I wanted to highlight one more thing. So, if you have, you have to look at the construction of the enclosure, right? So, convection is typically not as effective as conduction. So mm-hmm. when you put the camera, typically you have some sort of a, a backplate that you're removing and you have some, some, some slide that you move, uh, that you mount the camera on. Um, primarily folks consider that the folks that make the enclosure, they consider that slide, just a mechanical mounting provision for the camera, because it, it has to sit somewhere secure at a, at a predictable position inside that enclosure, right? Facing the front window. Yeah. So the primary concern is, okay, this is just a mechanical mounting provision. That's great, but it also has, it doubles up as a heat sink, right? So you're now mounting the metal of the camera to um, the actual, that little slide. And now it's starting to conduct heat. But if that's not very effectively done in terms of the interface between the camera enclosure, the the mounting surfaces to each other, um, sometimes it's just like stamped metal. So the surfaces are very, like slightly bent, you know? So (laughs) when you would really like, you press the stuff together, um, the surfaces that actually contact each other, the surface area is very poor, right? So now you're not really conducting very well. So what you're left with is a complete convection situation, right? Whereas if you have a higher end sort of an enclosure, it it will make that surface area a very good conducting surface and to actually draw the heat away from the camera and then bring that heat into the, body of the enclosure and 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 so you you have a conduction mechanism primarily that that's conducting the heat away right so so those are like some very critical differences to understand if you have an outside heat impact but also to get rid of the inside heat sort of a thing so anyways if you're going beyond that meaning um let's say let's pick a number let's say the 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 environment is 150 200 degrees yeah on a permanent basis um that is guaranteed a territory where you cannot rely on passive cooling anymore because eventually um, the the temperature of the enclosure on the outside will reach an equivalent to to the 200 degrees. So, well, that will also mean that eventually inside it will reach 200 degrees, not (laughs) considering the additional heat input from the camera on the inside. So you will exceed the maximum operating temperature from the camera right so and it's just a question of time and it's going to happen rather quickly actually so now you need to do forced cooling like yeah. you have to have an additional input um of of cold air or or um you know there, there's different methodologies of cooling so one thing a very typical one is to do just run compressed air into it right you just have a an exchange of air to the outside. That's one option. The next level up from there is what we call a vortex cooler. That's a little device. It's a little mechanical device. Um, you, you you put um, compressed air in and it separates hot air on one side and it outputs cooled air on the other side. It's quite an interesting device. It's not very efficient. Um, so you, you're gonna be, it's very, very, um, Airflow
0: hungry. Mm, okay. <laughs> you
1: need a lot of CFMs of airflow, which creates cost in the operating costs, right? If you're running a huge industrial facility and you don't care about that extra air, fine. But um, consider that it, it takes a lot of air, um, several cubic feet per minute of air going through this thing to create some cooling effect, right? So they come in different sizes, and and you have to again, you have to calculate. Its cooling capabilities and capacity, uh, typically expressed in BTUs (British Thermal Units), to actually say, "Okay, what is able to cool needs to exceed what it's able, or what 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 the heat input is on on the enclosure from the outside and the inside, right? So you need to take uh, get rid of that heat inside. So sure. that's a that's a vortex cooling, right? So and you need compressed air as an additional utility to to be in this." Um, Another potential external cooling mechanism is uh, if you wanted to do it electrically, um, it's um, basically a TEC cooler, a thermoelectric cooler. Hmm. Um, and that has a Peltier effect where one side gets hot if you put current in and the other side gets cold. Um, so that's another option there. And you can stack them up for additional cooling. Again, not very efficient. Um, takes a lot of electrical energy now to cool it. Um, you know, but but it's possible if you don't have air and you have electricity available, you can do something like that, right? There's other issues that you have to consider now, is condensation, uh, like with any air conditioning unit, for instance. You have to make sure that you don't create condensate inside the camera and all those kind of things. So there's some design aspects around that. Um, and then the next level up from there is actually a liquid-cooled enclosure, right? It's really uh, you're creating the, the enclosure becomes a heat exchanger essentially. Like a radiator in your car, you have a double walled enclosure and you're, you're running, um, segments of, of, um, tube material through the enclosure all the way around. And you're running cold water through it at a certain flow rate. And that essentially draws the heat out of the enclosure. And it also cools the outside of the enclosure. That's for like really hot applications. You need that. And that's actually quite efficient running, running water through it. Um, Hmm. And it doesn't cost much. You can, if you have an industrial chiller, you can even recycle the water, chill it back down, and then recycle it back through it. Or you just use city water, run it through, and then dump it somewhere. You can do that as well. But you could have a closed loop um, circulation going on there with a, a chilling unit on it. But there's a lot of different, you know, considerations um, and um, methodologies that help you cool an enclosure.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. With regards to this uh, water cooling. Um, well, let me ask it this way at at, at about what temperature, you know, based on your experience at about what temperature does, you know, air or, uh, vortex cooling, or even, you know, thermoelectric type electrical cooling, where, where does it kind of limit out and where, where does, uh, you know, uh, water cooling start to kick in? Is there, is there certain temperature ranges where, where you find that, Hey, it's just not effective anymore and we need to go to water cooling.
1: Yeah. Again, what we need to consider is also the heat dissipation inside the enclosure. How hot is the camera running? If it's a fairly (laughs) cold kind of a camera, meaning you can look at the wattage of the camera. If it's like a six watt sort of a maximum, that's that's very small. But if they go up from there, some of these cameras run pretty darn hot, right? So that's already a problem to begin with. I mean, even in, in an outdoor, a simple outdoor enclosure, I have cameras that do tend to overheat. If I just plainly put them in an outdoor enclosure, they will not make it in the long run just because they're running so hot. So if I pick the wrong enclosure, they just create their own thermal runaway because they produce more heat um, in, in the air in, trapped inside the enclosure. Yeah. If there's no airflow, um, it, it will create a thermal runaway, especially on a warm day. Right. So So it really depends on the circumstances, and we have to consider that, but generally speaking, and I'm making a very general statement here. Let's say if the environmental temperature is really just outdoors, right? Let's say it it doesn't on on an absolute brutal day in Arizona, maybe 120 F, right? You can typically in a camera that runs decently cold, Uh, less than 10 watt sort of a camera in an enclosure you can get away with passive cooling like in other words the 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 enclosure itself is fine with a sun shield. you're good right and then also you have to you you have to consider the maximum um, operating temperature let's say if it is 120 125 f on the camera it's the maximum operating temperature you're typically okay um um, with a, it's kind of borderline, but you're typically okay uh, running the camera without any additional cooling methods. Okay. If you go a step up from there and say, okay, it, it's it's above that 110, 120 degrees environment, let's say 150 to 180 F in in some hotter industrial environment, then you want to switch to at least a vortex cooling situation, right? You got to bring in some extra cold air, otherwise you're going to cook the camera. Got it. Anything above 180 200 degrees, you want to switch over to liquid cooling because the vortex is again, also not going to keep up. I mean, you can, you can size up and up and up on, on the vortex, but the problem is you're going to run 12, 15, 20 CFM through this thing. And, and the inefficiencies are just going to be um, unsurmountable at this point where it just makes sense to switch over to cooled water yeah, uh, because the efficiency is so much better at that point. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then there becomes also an upper limit when when the process just gets hotter and hotter, even a water-cooled um, situation is not gonna cut it anymore. You have to have additional cooling. You have to have heat shields around the enclosure, uh, heat insulation so that you don't have direct radiated heat hitting the enclosure, um, you know? So th- there's there's an upper limit to things as well. You can't just put it in, in a 900 degree or, I've, uh, you know, increase here and there. Like, well, we have to put the camera inside an oven. Well, okay, but <laughs> you know, there, there's limit, there's practical <laughs> limits. I mean, special engineering projects. If you have multiple layers of cooling and all those kind of things, you, you can probably do that. You get also issues then with the, um, the optical, the the exotic uh, optics on the viewing glass because now you have to consider you have to cool the glass. But even in an oven environment, the, the the front window may not survive this either. So, you know, usually it's better to have a viewing window on the process, cooling that down and have the camera sitting on the outside rather than, you know, having all of it trying to get everything inside. That's kind of uh, tough to do, you know?
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense, Marcus. Um, When when it comes to, um, let's say, explosive environments, and Mm -hmm. we're talking about environments that require you know intrinsically safe or atex or class 1 div 2 those are some of the the different uh uh rating systems that are out there with regards to uh equipment in hazardous environments what what are the options for infrared cameras are there options for infrared cameras
1: yeah that's a that's definitely a specialty case um you see maybe for um listeners that that are not that familiar with it so there's environments out there um, primarily in the oil and gas environment, where you have you may have um, explosive materials in the environment, and this could be those could be solids, um, but in the oil and gas it 's m- most of the time it 's gases, flammable gases right and you want to make sure you 're not accidentally creating an ignition source
0: hmm.
1: so a camera that runs hot in an enclosure depending on the flash point of the gas in the environment could be considered an ignition source right. Uh, so can be any sort of ionized sort of a spark if you create uh, a shortcut accidentally in the uh, electronics or the electronics fail and create a spark those things need to be protected from so that they cannot create that ignition source and therefore an explosion there's there's essentially three levels of um what we call you know, loosely X-proof, explosion proof, right? So what does it mean? So there's the explosion containment methodology. An explosion containment, those are these NEMA 12, NEMA 12X sort of enclosures that are extremely thick walled, half an inch thick, and they have bolts every inch, every couple of inches. They basically say if there is an, an, an ingress of an explosive material and there's an ignition source inside the enclosure causing an explosion inside the enclosure it needs to be able to contain that explosion inside the enclosure without becoming an ignition source to the outside environment so that basically means is they can literally have a full explosion inside the enclosure the window cannot blow out so the window is typically also like 10 12 millimeters thick and, and that makes this whole thing a monster. It's like super heavy, super thick, super expensive, especially for thermal applications. It's, it's outrageously expensive because you would have to have like a 10, 12 millimeter sort of a germanium window, like a really like a big block of the germanium there. That's really expensive. And it's also attenuating your signal quite dramatically. So it's, it's not a really good, um, I mean, it, it, they exist, but it, it's, it's a very expensive proposition there right mm. so so that's and then they are they're constructed in such a way that if they do have an explosion well you can't just create an explosive pressure that pressure needs to be released so typically the the gaskets in those enclosures are designed to release that pressure over time without having sparks coming out um so anyway that's that's an explosion uh, uh containment uh methodology and then we have the intrinsically safe approach. So there's three approaches, right? The, the explosion prevent, I'm sorry, explosion containment, the intrinsically safe one, that's basically saying everything inside is encapsulated in, in resins, in whatever. And it also has, um, it does not exceed a certain power threshold, um, which could cause um, sparking, if you will. So there's a certain energy calculation in joules to say, even if I create a shortcut, it cannot create a spark uh, with high enough energy to become an ex, um, uh, an explosion or like an ignition source. So those are intrinsically safe cameras. They, they exist that you can okay. put on there. Um, and then the third one um, is an explosion prevention. And that's the most common one used An ex- explosion prevention just says, we're going to create an environment inside the enclosure. That's true for camera enclosures or electrical cabinets, for instance, um, where we purge the, the, the inside. So the purging happens up on startup. So in case you did have an ingress of explosive materials, such as gases or, or solids, fibers, whatever it is, um, they will be purged out first. And then you turn the equipment on. While the, the environment is pressurized a little bit over ambient. So the idea there is even if the enclosure has a leak, since you have a positive pressure compared to the outside environment, uh, only things can go out of the enclosure and nothing can come in. <laughs> and there are special perch and pressurization controllers that we can add to these enclosures. Um, and that is basically an explosion prevention method. right? Okay. And okay. then there's different, um, it's a whole other subject on its own, there's different classifications and, and groups, um, you know, there, there's class one, diff one, class one, diff two, class two, diff one, class two, diff two, and then there's different subgroups that that specify what sort, what is, what type of explosive materials are in the area, are those solids, are those fibers, dust, um, are those grains, uh, let's say f- uh, flour in, in the food production, are those gases, and, and what are they, right, and then there's temperature groups. That basically specify what is their flash point, you know, and all those kind of things. So it gets quite involved in in that area. Um, so you know, those those are kind of, you know, the the, the typical candidates for those X proof uh, sort of environments.
0: Yeah, it sounds like if you're dealing with one of those environments, it would be a great idea to consult with with someone who has esper- expertise in this space again to make sure that well, you're, you're protecting your investment in your cameras, but also, and maybe even most importantly, the, the environment in which it's operating and the people that are also working within that environment, which you just touched on something which was amazing to me to learn this because automatically I think, yeah, oil and gas, explosion proof, I need this type of enclosure. But even in certain food industries and packaging you 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 need to have explosion proof, and you touched on this briefly. You mentioned dust. I, I don't know. Maybe can you can you just comment on that uh, a little little further? You know, based on your experience, you know, what are some of those non oil and gas environments where yes, you still need to consider explosion proof?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So a lot of dust particles, if they if they come in a a dense enough. Sort of a, an occurrence, if you will right if you, they become uh, they can become explosive, even spices, right if you take cinnamon, for instance, and you would take cinnamon and 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 grab a handful of cinnamon and just throw it up in the air i mean don't do it, don't try this at home <laughs> and you have an you have an ignition source you're creating an explosion, right, the same thing with flour yeah um, so typically grains anything that has some oil components in it and, and, and you dust it up it's it's a it's a combustion mixture um you know you, you have the right mixture between oxygen uh, like an accelerator and an oxidizer and and um and combustible material you have the right mixture and and you're in trouble you know so yeah so you have this there um people have probably well yeah there there's fertilizers that fall into that category um you know ammonia based materials i mean they're they're very Flammable to begin with, um, uh, any sort of paint booth applications, automotive. Um, mm-hmm. They have robots spraying paint over it. The lacquer thinner that's in there, acetone, you know, all those kind of chemicals. There, I mean, there's a lot of different explosive uh, sort of environments around, and they differentiate between: is this stuff around under normal operating conditions? Then it's a then it's a Division One. Uh, it's it's basically always there. that requires different methodologies of protection versus the div two division two means it's only there in under abnormal conditions if there's a leak or something spills and and so the risk is categorized a little bit lower than the div one so those are things um you know class two basically says it's a solid combustible material fibers and grains and all those kind of things uh class one always refers to gases and gases Class one diff one is the most dangerous one. It's basically saying there's explosive gases around under normal operating condition in a high enough concentration that any ignition source will instantaneously create an explosion. So that's obviously uh, ultra, ultra dangerous, right? So you cannot mess around with that in any shape or form. That's certainly not a do-it-yourself sort of a topic. (laughs) We actually have to use computerized. Perch and pressurization systems uh, with a lot of safety mechanisms in it to make sure nothing can go wrong in those environments. Gets really expensive, you yeah. know, because it's obviously you're protecting a lot of things. I mean, people can lose their lives if, if this goes wrong, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Marcus, um, building a little more upon the, you know, dusty environment. Uh, we, we've talked about this before. We hit on it briefly here a little bit with regards to uh, attenuation of the the thermal signal uh, in the camera, which is going to impact your measurements and your results, so uh, you have one of these enclosures, and let 's say you 've covered all your bases with regards to whether it 's explosion proof or not, and those those needs uh, from a dustiness perspective, what are options available to make sure you're you know not again uh, uh, reducing or attenuating the signal? Uh, to the infrared camera sensor because of dust collecting on the surface of the enclosure? What are, what are some options there?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so dust as well as grime sometimes, right? Hmm. Grime and even liquid sometimes, moisture and those kind of things. Anything that can accumulate on the front window will eventually be strong enough to attenuate your, your thermal signature, right? So what, when you look through the camera's eye, stuff will become more blurry, It looks like it's out of focus, but it may actually be um, that there's stuff um, accumulated on top of the viewing glass. So protection mechanisms, there are what we call air knives. Um, They are basically air nozzles that are pointed towards the glass. And and there's a couple of different um, methodologies there as as well. So either you have a permanent airflow that prevents these materials from settling in the first place, but there's also the, the occasional puff that's usually sitting on a timer that puffs every five minutes and does a strong air puff hmm. and just removes stuff on a constant basis, right so those are the two things um, you can do um, good preventative me- uh, measures are can you can you point the camera down at an angle rather than up so that uh, you work against the gravity kind of a situation if stuff settles, you don't want to have a camera pointing up sometimes that's unavoidable. We had a situation in, in, a, in a steel factory where the camera enclosure was looking straight up and the debris was falling down. That's, that's not wow. a good situation. So, this was um, inherited in, in, in the regular maintenance plan where they had to clean the window. There was just, you know, if the particles become too heavy, uh, that's another problem too. You can also have damages on your window if stuff falls down. Um, so, those kind of things. Sometimes you can deal with um, mirrors. And um, mm-hmm. we had um, a, a metal shredding application. And every once in a while, it was pieces of fragments of metals flying around like bullets. Um, and they would destroy the front window um, you know, of the enclosure because it was literally like a bullet getting through the glass. So there we did um, like a 45 or 90 degree uh, mirror, if you will, with a replaceable, not as expensive material um so they could replace that and put it back in if it got banged up too bad but it would protect the camera and the enclosure window so those are things you can you can kind of try to do there yeah there's a lot of <laughs> when we say harsh environment we we mean harsh environments <laughs> yeah
0: yeah that's that's interesting and when you're utilizing you know let's say the continuous air the air puff y- you also need to be careful about the type of air right the quality of the air that you're you're putting on this window
1: yes yeah, very another very good point. So we typically call it uh, instrumentation air. Okay, so when you we we'll have to do a little excursion into compressed air generation. So there's air compressors out there and there there's different types. Um, and um, some of them, um, they have actually uh, oil uh, on the pistons that compress the air. And, and some of like in your car, a little bit of that oil mist makes it into the compressed air chamber, right? Um, so then that mist of oil travels um, in the airlines. So you don't wanna use, uh, you know, unseparated uh, uh, air and, and blow this either inside the, the, the camera enclosure and then, you know, have an oil film building up on the inside or on the outside, right? So you need, you need an oil separator. You need also an air dryer
0: mm-hmm. or a
1: water separator to make sure that you have dry and clean um, air going in and and ideally uh, filter size down to a micron, one micron, two micron, sort of a filter size is usually recommended for these applications. So you don't um, blow any other contaminants into the stuff, right?
0: Yeah, okay. Excellent. Marcus, I think think we've covered uh, what we had uh, planned for in today's conversation, but I'm I'm sure we have listeners who may still have questions, may still require some guidance uh, with regards to again making sure they're selecting the right enclosure for their camera and their environment. What should they do?
1: Well, we're always here. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're always we're always geeking out about those kind of topics, so we're more than happy to to help folks out. Uh, um, you know, if if you call us. Do some homework up front and figure out okay wh- what is what is the environment like that i want to put the camera in right yeah and think about what is my temperature right if i'm not sure maybe take a thermometer th- thermometer out there and, and say at the installation point where i'm planning to putting the camera enclosure what is the temperature there so that's good to know because sometimes you will be surprised right you're like yeah it's gonna be roughly this but it's well, maybe it's 20 30 degrees warmer um, have handy what which camera do you want to put in there yeah what are the specs like have a spec sheet to share about the camera so we can figure out mechanical size of the camera what kind of a lens is on there so we can match up the window size because if it's a very wide angle we need a larger window size you know that's a that's a thing too and then what's the power consumption on the camera so we can calculate the heat dissipation inside of the enclosure, right? So we, we, we recommend the right enclosure there. Um, and any other things we need to, is, is it a you know class one, diff two, is it an explosive sort of an environment or not, right? How harsh does it get? Like what's the environment like in terms of debris, any sort of contamination and all those kind of things. So the more, the more stuff like this, what you learn today, hopefully in the podcast that you can gather up front. The the quicker we can help, you know.
0: Absolutely, great great guidance, Marcus. Thank you, and uh, to our listeners, thank you for for joining us today. Uh, I believe we've uh, we accomplished our goal and objective of illuminating, if you will, this subject around enclosures and taking those points that Marcus wrapped up here with. Uh, well said. Uh, and give us a call. In fact, if you come to the the MoviTherm website. You'll find that the website is broken down into different sections. And one of the sections is around products. Uh, One is solutions. If you go to the products tab, uh, that will take you to enclosures. And you can see what enclosures are available uh, from Movitherm. Uh, a, 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 A chat box will pop up. And if you have questions and need some guidance or want someone to call you or talk to you just just respond to that chat or click on the button to contact me and and we will have one of our experts uh, reach out and if you have those those items prepared that Marcus touched on here yeah we'll be able to guide you through the process and make sure that you have the right enclosure for the right camera for the right uh, conditions thanks for joining us today on the thermal review podcast We hope you found this previously recorded interview with Marcus Tarrant enlightening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and don't forget to share it with your fellow thermographers. As always, if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to explore in future episodes, feel free to reach out. Until next time, stay safe, stay informed, and keep capturing the heat.